I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. Hi, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Emily Oster, PhD, who's a professor of economics at Brown University. She's the best-selling author of Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know, and her latest book, which is Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, New York, and Esquire, among other publications. Emily received her BA and PhD from Harvard, so she's a total moron. She currently lives in Boston with her husband, also an economist, and their two children. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. It's such a thrill to be able to talk to you. I feel like you've become like such a guru on all things parenting from such a thoughtful place. So I feel like I get my like personal dose of expertise this morning. So thanks. <laughs> so can you tell listeners what Crib Sheet is about? Yeah, so Crib Sheet is about parenting and it's about using evidence to make parenting choices. So it's about breastfeeding and vaccinations and sleep training and co-sleeping and all the kind of big things that come up in the first few years of life and also some of the smaller things that come up and really about kind of looking at what does the evidence say about these choices because I think there's a lot of noise that we get when we are thinking about these choices from people who want to give advice and some of the advice is well-meaning and some of the advice is bossy and mean and some of it's somewhere in between that and this book is really about saying what is the actual evidence say about those choices and how should you think about making the choice that works for you? Since in a lot of these settings, it is not obvious from the data what is the right thing to do. That there aren't that many places where it's like you should definitely do this or should definitely not do this. There are a few, but not that many. And so much of the the work of the book is to really say, okay, here's the evidence. Now, how should you make this choice? So when I was talking to your mutual friend, Anna, she had said, I, who's also an economist, she said, you know, I've reviewed all this literature, but it never occurred to me to write a book about it. So <laughs> what made you not only review all the literature, I'm assuming for your own kids, but then take it for the benefit of everybody else? Yeah. So, I mean, this started when I wrote about uh, pregnancy. So my first book is a, a sort of similar approach to to pregnancy. And I think I, I had a reaction that I, and it's it's funny that and I said that because a lot of economists have told me this and, <laughs> and sort of people who do not just economists, but like lady academics have said, you know, I did a lot of this research and, but I never, you know, thought about writing it down. And I think that part of it is that I really like the process of sort of trying to write for a broader audience and thinking about the challenges that come with that kind of writing in a way that's sort of different than the challenges that come with academic writing. And so I think I was always more predisposed to that. But I think the other way to say it is just, I, I like took this a little far. You know, people <laughs> no. are like, you know, I was like one of these people was like, I should write a book about that. But then I, I like, I did it. And so there, there it is. And then the second book kind of came out of the first book. I love that you, there's a way you found to actually spin that as some sort of a negative that you took oh, it yeah. too far. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you're like the super accomplished person with these great books and you're like, oh, I just like, you know, I couldn't cut myself I off. Too far. I could do it too far. It was too much. 
<laughs> so how did you even end up becoming an economist? Let's start there. I know both your parents are economists. Yeah. And- so both my parents are economists. So I knew that that was a job that one could have. But actually, I wanted to be a scientist or a doctor, which I think is not inconsistent with where I've ended up. And But, you know, in, in college, I was like very into biology. And, and so my freshman year, I got this job after freshman year working in a fruit fly lab. So I actually had two jobs. I had one job was like sort of on the side, I was doing some economics research for somebody that like I had met through my parents. And then I was also working in this, in this fruit fly lab. And I realized that like, I hated working in the fruit fly lab and that more than not liking it, I really do not have the temperament for like wet work in a lab. And that this was just like, not something I'd turned out to be to be passionate about, but I really liked the economics stuff that I was doing. And so I sort of like veered into that. And then, you know, I just, I've always really liked doing research. And this was the sort of kind of research that I, that I got drawn to. And then I became an economist. I feel like for your mom to be an economist, like I feel like there aren't that many economists. I mean, not that I know too much about this, but at that age, like in that generation almost, she must no, no, have yes. a really cool story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she... Also, you know, yes, my mom ha- does have a cool story because she's not, you know, she did not grow up with parents who are who are professors. Her mom was a waitress, and you know, who didn't like I think finish high school and immigrated from Sweden. And then my mom, you know, went to college and at Hofstra, which is not an especially good college, fine college, but it wasn't, you know, she didn't go to an Ivy League school. And then she just was trying to decide, like, should she get a PhD in economics or should she go to law school? And she like applied to like Harvard and Yale for those things. And the thing she got into was the Harvard economics department. And then she went there, but there were like two women, you know, and she just sort of, I don't know. I mean, it was a different, it was a different time, although really not as different as we might, as we might wish. So yeah, but she, she ended up being an economist, which is very nice. <laughs> so I feel like you have this gift, obviously, for taking your economics sort of hat, if you will, and applying it to maybe things that weren't always so typical fodder for economists. Have you done this for other industries aside from parenting? Not that parenting's an industry, but would you think about doing it any other? Like, do you apply this lens anywhere else? I think I apply this lens everywhere else. Oh. And, so, and so, you know, I think like in the, in the sort of scope of like decisions that I make about my life, and I think part of it is my husband is also an economist. And so it's a, a shared language. So when we're thinking about, about choices, even before we had kids thinking about choices about what, you know, what should we do with our time or how should we shop for a house or like where should we live? All of these things are sort of influenced by this this approach that I think to us seems like, oh, that's just how you make decisions. But then when you explain that to other people, they're like, you guys are crazy. So <laughs> like, give you me- have like a crazy relationship. You talked to, you showed an example of it in your book about ordering vegetarian meal kits, basically is where you ended up when you were debating how yeah. to cook. Can you just like take me through an example of how someone might approach a decision versus how you would approach a decision? Like, I don't know, take something normal, like, I don't know, pick something, like how you decide you know, what to do on a Saturday morning with your kids or like, how, how do you make the normal decisions that you have to make 57 times a day? Yeah. So I think we probably are not quite that crazy about the sort of like normal, the normal, like everyday decisions. But, you know, when it comes to things like sort of what is the, it's more, I think when it comes to decisions about like, how should we spend money and like, what is the, you know, like, should we outsource this thing? So we make a lot of decisions about like, should we do this or should somebody else, you know, should we like clean the house or should someone else clean the house? Should we like order meal kits or should we do this? And I think that, that a lot of people sort of make that choice by kind of like what 
sort of like, what do I want? And, you know, what can I afford? And I think we, in some ways, those are the central considerations for what we're doing, but the language is different, that it's sort of like, okay, what's the opportunity cost of my, of my time, as opposed to what we can afford, which are effectively a similar question, but not exactly the same. And, you know, similarly, rather than saying, you know, what do I want? It's like, okay, like how much, what would be my willingness to pay to have somebody else do this? Or how much money would I accept to clean somebody else's house? Which is like a different way to frame that, that question that I think is not the way everyone would do it. Interesting. I love how you used marginal utility to describe, you know, I think you described marginal utility in, in relation to how much time you can spend with your kids, right? Like, the, yes. where did I, I can't even find this question that I wrote, but that after a while, like you spend an hour with your kids on the floor, is the second hour that much more important? Like, I'm flashing back to my intro economics class with like the graphs going down, yeah, right? Yeah, the like, graphs going down, right. exactly. Yeah. Your marginal utility is diminishing. It's diminishing. Yes. Yeah. And I think that we, you know, we teach this in economics classes around apples. You know, we have this sort of like at the first apple, it's really great. But like after you've already had 15 apples, like the last, apple doesn't taste that good, right? And and I think that this this is an, an a sort of application of that to to the idea of time. That when you spend an hour, you know, that as you spend time with your kids, the the marginal hours, like the the next hour is, you know, for some of us, like not as good as the first hour. And when you think about the optimal time allocation, you have to compare sort of the marginal hours, not the average hours. And so this is something I spent a lot of time on in class is the, is the distinction between marginal and average, that on average, I could enjoy my kids much more than my job, but I could still prefer to spend more time at my job if the, the marginal utility is declining more slowly. Interesting. People do not, that is not always like that does not always go over well with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with any unique point of views, it can't go over well with yeah. everybody, right? I mean, oh, and I think some people are like, yes, that's what, that's what I think. Like, you know, I think for some people that is like an insight, like, yes, that's a good way to explain how I feel about this decision. And I think for, for some other people, uh, it's, it's not, but I don't know, that's how I'm used to thinking about it. And that's sort of how you, not rationalize is the wrong word, you don't need to rationalize or justify working. But I feel like you said that in an article for working parents, like if the margin utility is going down, then you might as well, like go do what you love. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think rationalize isn't the right, I think rationalize is not the right word because I think it implies that somehow like this choice right. is not like a, you know, the, the right choice yes, or not a good choice or something. Yeah, but, no, but I think you're, no, but I think that you're, that you're right. It's sort of like a way to, um, it's a way to to understand that this is the choice that works for you. Mm-hmm. Because I think that there is a sort of cognitive dissonance between the idea that like, you know, well, if I love my kids more than I love my job, then shouldn't I be spending all my time with them? And this is a way to think about, well, actually that fact does not imply that those two things are not implied by each other. And that I that when you think about this choice, deciding to go to work is not the same as saying you do not love your kids love your kids. Uh, and, and I think that's that even for those of us who are very sure that we would want to work and tell this, there is that dissonance and now, it helps to have thought about it. Now I am back to my interest psychology class for cognitive dissonance. This is great. I'm going to get like a refresher. This is like, yeah, it's a refresher of undergrad. I, I need you to like <laughs> dabble in art history for a few minutes and then I'll be like covered. But cognitive dissonance, why don't you just explain that concept? 
So I'm not a psychology professor, but what I, the way that I understand this is that, you know, when you have made a, a choice, you don't want to think things or do things that make that the wrong choice because that causes you to feel like cognitively dissonant, like somehow that you you have these sort of two different things in your in your head. And I think this actually comes up all the time in some of these big parenting choices. So even in something like breastfeeding, you know, if you like breastfeeding is like a lot of work. If you want to like breastfeed your kid until they're a year old, like that's actually a fair amount of work. And I think that some of what happens when we think about like, why are people so militant? Why can people get so militant about this? Is that after you've done all that work, you kind of want it to be like, it's really important, right? You want to feel like, obviously this is the most important thing. Otherwise, why did I spend all that time like doing it? And I think that that can lead us to then be interested in telling other people, obviously, this is so important. It, you should understand that because I spent all this time doing it. And it can be hard then to say, yeah, I spent a bunch of time doing it because like that was the choice that worked for me. But, you know, it, maybe it's not the choice that works for everybody. Thank you for that. You don't have to teach anymore. <laughs> uh, what about just weighing? So you have all this data in your book and synthesize it in a really great way. What about just going with your preferences? Like, do you think now that you've given everybody the data, should people just like wing it or should people try to research it or both? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a piece of this where some people have said, well, is this book just like do like go with your gut? You know, does this book just say like, here's all the data, but like actually make whatever choice choice you want. I think there's a, there is a little bit of that feel sometimes because in many of these choices, the answer is like, yeah, there's many good choices and you kind of have to decide what works for you, which I think is a bit different actually than going with your, with your gut. So I think that, that what I'm kind of advocating here is that, that you take a structured approach to making the decision. And the structured approach involves looking at the data and then combining that with some actual understanding of your preferences. Not like, what do I feel right this second? You know, but like, what are the things that's going to kind of work for my family? Like, you should talk about it with your spouse. You should have like a plan. You should think about how do we see the costs and, and benefits here, which is different from saying going with your gut, but is also different from saying that everyone should do the same thing. So I think there's kind of a rule for preferences, which is different from just like knee jerk, like whatever you're feeling in the moment kind of approach. So now that you've written all this stuff about parenting, do you put pressure on yourself when you're dealing with the routine parenting issues like tantrums? I'm not sure how old your kids are now, but all these things that happen in daily life, like, do you feel like, wait a minute, like I should be able to control this. I researched this. I know this. Like, is there some funny thing that happens to you in your like exact position? Yeah, I think- the place that I really feel this is like sometimes when I'm in public and then like, of course, like, no, it's not like people know who I am. So it's, this is all like sort of an internal, like an internal thing. But like, you know, there was this time not that long ago, we were in like the airport and my son was like licking the escalator. And, you know, <laughs> like the thing is like, I, you know, I was like, ah, oh, stop it. You know, but I, I don't actually think that's that terrible. But, you know, it was sort of, I was in this moment, like someone, like what if someone actually did like see that. And like this person thinks she's a parenting expert and her kid is like licking the escalator at Heathrow. Like what kind of person is that? I'm hoping he's not like 15 years old. No, he's four. He was three. Okay, he was, good. Okay. Like All right. Three -year -old that would be like a different escal issue. No, okay. I agree. No, no, okay. my kids are little. So I think there is sometimes this feel that, that I am more cognizant than I might be about how people perceive my parenting choices. And at my kids, sometimes at my kids' school also, because I, I don't like talk about the book at school. I don't like, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people at the school know that I wrote this, wrote this book, but I think there always is this feel anytime you're interacting with the parents of your kids 
friends that like, what does this person think about me? But I think particularly if you've then gone out and been like, oh, I wrote this book about like how to be a good parent. <laughs> like then when the kid comes home and they're like, oh, you know, this person's kid like pulled my shirt. You, you wonder if the parents are like, oh yeah, she thinks she's so great at parenting. Well, like, <laughs> her kid's pulling my kid's shirt. So. I feel like they should do something like in preschool, especially like I see all these moms every day, right? For two seconds, right? Hey, how are you? Whatever. But they should, they should like do some sort of, two minute video on each parent. Cause everybody, like, look at what a cool job you have. Like they might not even know. Like, I, I think there should be like a, let's get to know the other parents to watch yeah. it, watch no, no, the I little totally video. Agree. And with my first kid, I got to know. So my daughter, like I know she's been in the same school since she was three. And now my son's there too. But like with, with, because she was our first, like we actually got to know a lot of the parents. So like a bunch of the parents in her class, I know, but somehow like I haven't invested in my son's class in the same way. So like, I don't know anything about the parents. I feel a bit like, I feel a bit bad because yes, as you say, I'm guessing many of them have very interesting jobs and would, you know, be interesting to to talk to, but I don't, I don't know. It's taken me most this year. Like, well, I shouldn't even say, I have four kids and it took a while. It took a while for me to like gear up for my fourth kid's class. (laughs) Like, what are his teacher's names? Like, who are the parents? But now finally, I mean, it's, he's been two years in the same class. I'm like, now I know that whatever, but it it definitely took me. I was like, I do not have the bandwidth for another set of parents. Like, I don't know. But anyway, now they're great people and I'm so happy. I know them, but it, you know, I needed like the little video. I need like a little, anyway, whatever. This is like off topic. Yeah. A little, a little refresher. So you wrote a piece in New York Magazine recently where you wrote about the things parents actually need. Mm-hmm. So what don't parents really need? Like, what do you think is totally, you know, superfluous? I think there is a lot of stuff that you buy in the first three weeks that you don't turn out to need. I recall, like, every time we had some issue with my daughter, we would just be like, oh, I'm going to buy something to fix that. You know, <laughs> it's like we had a lot of stuff. So, like, I had a couple of thoughts on it. Like, so one is, like, bottle warmers. Mm-hmm. Like the bottle warmer, you don't, you don't need the bottle. You don't want to train them to drink it warm. You oh. just want them to be able to drink it at room temperature. I got. I made that That's mistake. Yeah, rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. I did that. You got to be able to Bad. drink it out of the fridge. It's fine. Tastes the same. It's okay. That was one thing that we had that was definitely not useful. The other thing was baby shoes. So we got all these like shoes for babies. Like, but like my kids didn't walk until they were like sixteen months old, and so we had all these like, what are they doing with those? shoes, you know, particularly because I didn't dress, I, I sort of just like dressed my kids in like, like onesies from Target. And so the, it wasn't, it wasn't even part of an outfit. It was just like, I had these like functional <laughs> shoes and like a belt. Somebody gave me a belt once for my baby. Like, <laughs> like, what? like doesn't need a, a belt. I mean, in the whole sort of like industrial complex of like baby, sort of like fancy baby clothes, I think is, is something that some people really like. I could never like quite get into because they just like pooped on everything. I feel like there's so much pressure before you have kids to like get it all right and get everything you need. And in this day and age, it's like you can get something in an hour delivered to your door. I mean, I'm here in New York, not everybody, but it's like if I didn't have the Aquaphor, I could get the Aquaphor later. I felt like everything had to be ready and stuck. I have That's Aquaphor. Good. I have yeah, Aquaphor like, like in every cabinet in my house. Yeah, me too. We have like use it for the everything. Tubes, the tubs, yeah, the little me tubes. Too. Travel, <laughs> travel size. That's like good for everything. That is like good. the is like the most useful product. I had like some like itchy something in the back of my head the other day and my nanny was there and she's like, let me put a little aquaphor on that. (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. It works as a lip balm. Yeah. The one thing I was, I was talking to one of one of my friends is, is pregnant and she was like, okay, like, you know, is there anything I'm, I'm missing? And I was like, look, you can order everything. The one thing is you need to have some formula in the house 
because like the moment, like there's going to be like a moment when you like, or there could be a moment when like the breastfeeding is not working and your like kid is really hungry and you want to like give them a little bit of formula and it's going to be three o'clock in the morning for sure. <laughs> like if you don't want your spouse to have to drive out, you got to have like a little bit of that around, like little bottles. <laughs> That's true. Totally. So I just wrote this article on What's Up Moms, where I picked four books for how to be a more relaxed yes, parent. And I included your book. And at the end, I was like, I need this for preteens because my older kids are almost 12. And I was like, what do you think, Emily Oster? Like, <laughs> so are you are you getting to that? And then I spent like five minutes last night as I wrote questions to you thinking of like funny names for teen books. And then I was like, I cannot send these to her. <laughs> these are not funny and I'm really tired. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem with doing the sort of like next, next phase is that that the data part of this becomes so much worse. I mean, I felt this even if you like in this book, as you sort of get into some of the questions, people will have more about older kids. Like, can you teach my three-year-old to read and so on? Like our data is very poor on that. Or like, what's the right kind of preschool? Is a Montessori school is right? Is a play-based preschool right? Like the answer is like, that depends on your kid. Like number one, we have almost no data. And it's not even that easy to imagine how we would run that kind of study because the kinds of kids who are going to benefit from Montessori may be like different than the kinds of kids who will benefit from something else. And so there's too much heterogeneity, like too many differences in the effects of those things on kids to really analyze them. So I think the data in that part is very poor. And, you know, then you're kind of left with just sort of structure. Like you, I mean, you could write a book that was like, how should you think about the kind of decisions that will come up with preteens or even with like older, you know, with six-year-olds. But I think that it's, it's just a much more complicated space. I don't know. I mean, I find, I find parenting my eight-year-old to be really fun and, you know, much less, in some ways, much less exhausting, but also like a lot more complicated yeah. than the, the little ones. Wait till 11. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I <laughs> No, and I'm sure parents out there who have like, you know, college, I mean, they're like, yeah, you think it's hard at 11, wait till 14, you know? No, yeah, I have a story at the end of the book about like these, these sort of older colleagues were like, we, when we went, we had dinner at their house and our kids were like one and four and their kids were like, 15 and 19 or something. And I was like, you know, boy, like when our kids are, are older, like we're going to run. They were like, yeah, we thought that. Yeah. But like, actually when our kids were both in high school, like we spent every night, like we spent three hours talking about like, you know, how to like make them happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had an author come in the other day who's a little older than me. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I haven't slept all night. Like my two kids, both my kids woke me up. It was one of those nights that dog was barking, whatever. And she's like, me too, because my two older kids had friends over until two in the morning and the music was <laughs> blasting. And I was like, oh my God. It's never going to it's end. Never it's gonna never end. going to no. end. I'm doomed. I'm like, nothing. <laughs> anyway, so do you think you're going to write another book? I, I don't know. I think if I wrote another one, it would it would probably not be about this. It would maybe it would be about diets. This is more like what I'm working on is sort of, and I think a lot of these same issues come up and the same kind of data, like limits to the data and how do you how do you think about biases come up a lot. And that is actually much closer to my academic work. So, but I don't know. I'm not sure. Like I, I took a long time to decide to write the second one because I wanted to be sure that I knew what I was going to say. And I don't know what I'm going to say in a third one. So we'll have to say no friends. Stay tuned. Wait like seven years. Okay. I'll wait seven years. My kids will be like, you know, out of my house by then. No, I'm kidding. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? No. So the advice I give a lot, a lot of academics ask me about writing books, you know, regular people who run and write books don't ask me, but academics ask me. And I think the main thing I tell them is like, if you're going to write a nonfiction book, you need to like know what all the 
it's best to know what all the chapters are first. I think a lot of people start with sort of like, I have one really good point that mm-hmm. I think other people should know about. And like, that's a great reason to write an article. But I think where the writing of books becomes onerous and unpleasant is when you have to write all the chapters. So you kind of want to make sure that you are planning to write all the chapters before you commit to writing any of them. Excellent. Well, I know you're not going to write a book about teens, but now I feel like I'm going to email you when I have to make major life decisions and see like, okay, what's the data on this? And I feel like, I don't know. (laughs) And I'll be like, whatever. I was like, well, I'm not going to listen to you anyway. I'm just going to do my own thing. (laughs) Exactly. That's the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye, Emily. This episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 